Stanberg. Thank you for coming on the first episode of 2022. Very pumped to have you in. Oh, and, uh, it's it's been pleasure. great getting to know you so far this year. What's it been like for the first couple of weeks uh, here at Gilman, and, and what are you doing on campus? I am the new assistant in the upper school library and just working on displays, helping prepare books to go on the shelves, shelving books, um, trying to get to know the students as they come in without being in their face, like, hey, I'm the new guy, come and hang out in mm-hmm. the library, but slowly getting a feel for the the vibe here. Mm-hmm. And it's a good vibe. Yeah, it is. It's. Uh, I feel like in my classes so far this year that there's a really good energy to the beginning of the school year, and maybe that's because, you know, some guys are coming back from, I don't know, COVID. Is, you know, we were at home for a couple of years, and now we're finally back into full swing. Last year, we started the school year with masks on, so this is kind of the first fall where it's not all funky and strange and, you know, wearing masks all the time. I, th- I think it's good. Um, I feel very lucky that I came in at a point where not everyone is masked. There's still a few people, and I understand that, that do wear the mask. But to be in a new place where you can actually see full facial expressions and not have to guess if someone is how someone is reacting. And, you know, like I said, it's just lucky timing that I landed here when things are almost back to normal. I don't think they're quite yet back to normal because you still test every once in a while and you still get a little well at least I do get a little nervous you know what if you're positive and so far so good mm-hmm. yeah um were you in New York so you've been in New York pretty much your whole life yeah I grew up on Long Island and for the last several years lived in Brooklyn and worked for the New York Public Library as a young adult librarian the 53rd street branch between uh Fifth and Sixth Avenue, so it's like Midtown Manhattan, a stone's throw from Times Square. So it's right across the street from the Museum of Modern Art. So we had people wandering in thinking that we were the museum because the space is just like open and inviting, and it, it was gorgeous. And I was there for three years. Before that, I was at a library on Long Island, my hometown library, commuting from Brooklyn to Long Island, and. Uh, yeah, NYPL. I, f- I felt like that would be it. I would retire from there. I mean, that's the top of the, that's the uppermost of the toppermost, you know, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. libraries. And my girlfriend and I just decided that we wanted to pool our money and buy a place and found that anything within commuting distance of New York City was beyond our financial means. And we didn't want to keep paying rent because mm-hmm. rent was just going up and up and up. And we love Baltimore. We love Hamden. So we found a place here. And uh, here I am. Had you ever been to Baltimore before coming down here? Yeah, we have friends that live down here in Hamden and Mount Washington. So we would visit a couple times a year. And every time we stayed here, um, we'd get an Airbnb. And my first question would always be, how close to Atomic Books is this Airbnb? Atomic Books? I don't know if I've ever been there. It's a great bookstore on Falls Road. Okay. It's... Um, they have an eclectic collection, something for everyone. It's re- It's unique. And there's um, it's also a bar in the back that's open a wow. few hours a day. Yeah, I've only only been to the bar part once, but the the bookstore it's just it's like part independent bookstore, part comic book store. I think they may sell music there, but it's also where it's John Waters' favorite bookstore, so his fan mail goes there. So 
it doesn't have to go to his house. And there's such a close connection with him when he has anytime he has a new book out, he does a signing there, and it's just a it's just a great place. So we live about five minutes from there. Perfect. So, yeah, and it's right near what they call the Ave, which is actually 36th Street. I still don't know the story behind that why a street is called the Ave, but it is, and I accept it. So. <laughs> We're like walking distance from everything we would want to do, like on yeah. a weekend. Great just, restaurants and yeah, some stores and some antique shops and yeah, charmery, right? Plenty of places to take my hard-earned money. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Um, yeah, that's the thing I feel like I've learned about Baltimore is that there are so many really cool hidden gems here that you almost have to talk to people who have explored and who are from here that know. Like I. I mean, I should know about Atomic Books. I'm an English teacher. I love bookstores, but I've been here for four and a half years and never been there. Yeah, definitely check it out. Yeah, like, but the only thing is they don't have, it's not a huge store. It's not like a Barnes & Noble or a Borders. But before I, you know, hit buy on Amazon, I'll go there and see if they have it or see if they can get it. And if they don't have it, they'll recommend, you know, another place that might have it. But as a last resort, I'll just get it from Amazon mm-hmm. or, or the library. But I don't know. If I'm looking for a book in the store, chances are I want it on my shelf. So, For sure. So what's, what's like the origin story of how you got into library and li- – is it librarianship? Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I the world of librarianing. The, wor- the world of being a librarian. How did that begin for you? Um. It actually happened when I was on tour playing music, and it was a five-star resort in Portugal that used to be a monastery, just the most beautiful place you could possibly imagine staying in. Had my had a room to myself, and just, it was after a show, and I started thinking of how I did not look forward to going home, because it was another several weeks before the next tour, so... I started seriously thinking about what kind of, like, you know, quote-unquote real job I could get. And I narrowed it down to um, working in a museum or being an archivist or being a librarian wasn't even at the top of the list. But for the jobs that I was interested in and could see myself waking up every day and not thinking, oh, no, I have to go to work, which enough people do that. I don't have to add myself to that list. Mm -hmm. Um, I ended up going to library school to work in an archive to be you know, to work with a special collection, maybe work at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame archives, something along those lines. My my focus was on archival studies in library school. And it turned out the first job I got out of school was as a young adult librarian in Queens. And I just loved working with the public. Like while I was in school, I had a job part-time working as a librarian trainee at a reference desk at the East Meadow Public Library. And just the different people coming in every day, you know, no two days were the same. I was like, all right, I could, I could probably do this for the rest of my life. It's just a matter of like landing in a place that I, you know, loved working with or had a good, a good vibe, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like even before you became a librarian, you always loved the interactions with people who came in, like when you were first working at libraries. Yeah. Did you always love books? Oh, my whole life, yeah. I mean, I would always go to the library and come out with, like, a stack of books. I mean, starting, you know, with Curious George or uh, the Hardy Boys. And then when I was 10, I started reading biographies. You know, I was 10 years old reading a book about Mick Jagger that was called 
I read the title as Everybody's Lucifer, but it's Everybody's Lucifer. So, like, I probably didn't understand half of what was in the book, and but I was already... The Stones have been my favorite band since I was nine. Hmm. So, you know, reading books about them, reading Mad Magazine, you know, I was just constantly reading, constantly reading, and my parents encouraged me to just read anything I was interested in as long as, you know, I was reading. It helps with your vocabulary, regardless of what you're reading. So I love going to the library. It was always part of the summer reading club. You know, I loved filling out, uh, you know, putting stickers on each day, you know, that I read a book or how many books I read and then getting a prize, even if it was a little Frisbee or you get a party at the end of the summer. It was just part of my part of my upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, once I had a car, I realized you can go to any library in your system and check out a book or have it sent to your local branch. So I was like a library nerd before I even knew that I would end up being a librarian. Man, that's awesome. It's crazy that some people are like you, some of my students I'm thinking about in English, you know, you they're reading on their own, they love to read, it's just a natural passion, and other students, they probably won't read a book, you know, they, even if it's mandatory and it's required for class, they'll do whatever it takes not to sit down and have to read the book. It's Some people just have it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I was always reading, unfortunately, it wasn't always... Um, what I was supposed to be reading. So maybe I didn't have the best grades until I was in college. And then I looked back and thought, wow, I could have made, you know, honor roll every semester if I was just reading X instead of Y. But I know I still feel like I got a a decent education. (laughs) Did you study, uh, what did you study in college? Did you study English? No, I studied philosophy and cultural anthropology. So, yeah, my my goal was to go to law school and become an entertainment lawyer or, like, you know, someone defending artists who were getting ripped off by, you know, bad contracts or whatever. And then when I was in – I went to law school for one year before I dropped out. I went to New York Law School in downtown Manhattan. And while I was there, I was playing drums, playing in local bands, and I thought if I put this much effort into playing music – I could probably get somewhere with it. You know, I, my goal wasn't to be famous. My goal wasn't to, you know, be a rock star or whatever, but just to, to make a living or just have that experience of playing music or touring. So dropped out of law school, focused on playing music, um, took acting classes, got work part-time, like just doing extra work or doing off-off-Broadway theater while playing in a band. And then eventually I got a call that, uh, C.J. Ramon, the, the former bass player for the Ramones, was looking for a drummer for one show in in Portugal, of all places. Mm. So that was like the first of three or four trips to Portugal, which is the same country where I made the decision to, you know, change course. But that first show in Portugal, he says, by the way, this is your audition to be my new drummer. So then I passed. And for the, for the next four years, anytime he toured, I was the drummer. Wow. Yeah. Uh, for people who don't know, who were the Ramones, and what was it like getting called up by the Ramones to go to Portugal and that kind of first experience for you, like joining that band or trying out for that band? Well, the Ramones are a punk band from Queens, New York, that formed in 1974. And their first album inspired bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash to form bands, and they were kind of like the forerunners of the whole punk rock scene. And so you had the original four with Joey on vocals, Tommy on drums, Johnny on guitar, and Dee Dee on bass. And when Dee Dee retired in 2000, 
not 2000, 1989, they auditioned and picked CJ to be the new bass player, and he was with them for seven years until they retired. So the Ramones, they had uh, their big hit was Blitzkrieg Bop, which everyone knows is the Hey Ho, Let's Go song. You'll hear it at baseball, at any sporting event. You'll hear that at some point when they're trying to rally the, the fans behind it, you know, the home team. Mm-hmm. So when I got the call for him that he needed a drummer for one show, I was more of like, I mean, I was playing in a punk rock band at the time, but I was more of a classic rock kind of guy. So I said, all right, let me call my punk rock drummer friends and see if I could find someone that can do it. And no one could do it or was available. So I said, all right, I'll give it a shot. I learned 30 songs in a week, rehearsed with him and his guitar player, Daniel Ray, who had also written and produced for the Ramones, and got the job. How did you you get connected with them? How did they know to call you up? We had a mutual friend that I went to college with, and I had played in a band called Rap Bastard. And we used to play shows with, when CJ wasn't touring, and right after the Ramones, he had a band called Los Gusanos. And we were on the bill with him a few times, so our mutual friend suggested me, and he remembered me from the Rap Bastard days, and he said, all right, we'll give him a shot. Mm. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, I was white-knuckling it the whole time, though. I mean, before the show in Portugal, he just looked at me. He's like, man, you don't look too good. He's like, don't worry. I felt like that my first show with the Ramones. He said, the first show is going to be rough. The next few shows are going to be rough, but eventually you'll you'll get it. Wow. And was, was everything located in Portugal? Is that where you toured for the most part, or did you go all over? Oh, no. we That show in Portugal was a one-off for, like, an arts festival, and then we would do tours of South America. Like, the first time I went to South America, it was about a week long, um, half in Argentina, half in Brazil. So that was pretty amazing. Wow. Then we did a, another tour of... Chile and Argentina with the Misfits, so another amazing tour. And then we would just, we did a, a U.S. tour that was a month long. We'd do Canada for like a week, um, Italy for a week. You know, we went to Italy three times. And just, we hit almost every country in South America, like over the course of four years, all over South America. I was always hoping to go to Japan and Australia, but he did that. He went back there after I left the band. But, you know, I'm happy for him. Man. Yeah, I always wonder what it's like to be on tour for bands. Does it get, I mean, I'm sure it gets exhausting, but I'm sure it's incredibly fun and, like, like such a cool bonding experience for the band. Uh, he's, he's the greatest boss I've ever had. I mean, hands down, the man, he's, he's, we're still in contact to this day. He's, like, my big brother. And... He would always say a bad day on the road is better than a good day in the office. <laughs> and I never saw him lose his cool. The closest to him losing it was we were in, um, where was it? Uh, we were in Venezuela trying to, get, trying to get to Panama. And the airport was just complete chaos. Security walking around with machine guns. And any American we walked into, they immediately recognized that we were Americans because we were probably talking louder than anyone else in English. And they would say, oh, my God, I've been here for a week trying to get home. You guys are never going to get back to the States. And we were like, whoa, we're just trying to go to, you know, we're going to Panama, play a show in Panama City tonight. And once we realized that we, there was no way we were getting on our flight or our, it was because we were there four hours early. And they said, oh, you're not here early enough. Just bags of cash were exchanged throughout the afternoon. And we eventually made it to Peru where we were supposed to play three nights later. We got on a flight to Peru. But before that happened... 
the closest that CJ ever came to losing it was like he said, these guys are hungry. I'm starving. If we don't at least get a bag of chips within a half hour, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> and that was his tone. That's as angry. That was him yelling. So It's just a warning, you know. Yeah, so. He knows himself. Yeah, yeah. He was He's an ex-Marine. Well, he was a Marine, so is a Marine. Wow. So, yeah. But he just he kept his cool. So I learned I learned so much from him just being around him. Yeah. What was the coolest show you ever you ever did? Probably a festival in Argentina in front of like thirty thousand people, oh. where just everyone, you know, chanting "Hey ho, let's go!" at the same time. Yeah. Just unbelievable, and they're like huge stage, giant screen behind me, and every once in a while, I out of the corner of my eye, I'd catch me on the screen and it was so hard not to just laugh because it's just ridiculous but i mean the crowds there were incredible so yeah that playing in front of that many people outdoors probably the best memory so before you uh joined the ramones well it was it was was cj ramon the ramones retired in in 96 so this it was just CJ Ramon touring solo. Okay, so you and CJ. Um, how did you, like, where, when did you first get introduced into drumming and music? And, like, how did that become a passion for you? Growing up, my mom was always playing Elvis records or, or the Beatles. Um, my father was a professional guitar player till I was about four or five years old. So I grew up with my dad walking around the house with an unplugged Fender Stratocaster, you know, strap, you know, just playing. Mm-hmm. So the music was just always there. And my parents got me a Muppet drum set when I was like three or four. And I still have the, the bass drum head from that. I found it when we, we just sold my parents' house and I found it in a basement. So now it's in Hamden, just the bass drum head. It's pretty cool. Wow. So when I was, when I could keep a beat, even when I couldn't keep a beat, my dad would like jam with me which he had the patience of a saint just to play music with me. He showed me how to play a beat, and when I was in high school, we played in bands together, so music was just always there. Yeah, it's in the blood. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, that's maybe one of the way- reasons I didn't really get into music growing up. I mean, I like listening to music, and I love concerts, and my parents love concerts, but I never played an instrument, really, because no one in my family really plays an instrument. I feel like having... It's not too late. It's not too late for sure. I'd love to learn maybe the drums or guitar would be cool. Um, I but think, yeah, never never learned an instrument. I think guitar is good because you can you can just pick one. You could have one here. I mean, there's two in the lobby at Gilman, thanks to Henry. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, when I first walked in for my first interview and I, I spied those two guitars, I was like, all right, this place isn't that bad. <laughs> that was a sign. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, what are some other, like, tour stories or experiences that you had in those? How long was that? Like, what was the time period? It was almost... with CJ. Um, no, let's see. Maybe, like, 2009 to 2013, something like that, roughly four years. Mm-hmm. I just remember on my the my other favorite memory is the morning of my 40th birthday because I'm old. Um, we played two shows in well we left for Nashville to play two shows in Nashville, and at the time we didn't have a guitar player like leading up to that. So I get a call from CJ saying, "Oh, 
I found a guitar player. It's Des Kadena, who was touring with the Misfits at the time, but Des Kadena is a founding member of Black Flag. He was one of the original singers. Then he wanted to move on and just do rhythm guitar, and that was when Henry Rollins joined Black Flag. So Des has a long history in music that I like. And so I, when I found out that Des Kadena was going to be the guitar player for the, the two shows, the weekend of my 40th birthday in Nashville, I was just like, wow, I can... I can retire after this, and I never have to do another show ever again. So when I picked up Dez at the train station on Long Island to take him to rehearsal, he looks at my arm and he's like, oh, you got the black flag bars. And I was like, kind of like, yeah, yes, sir. Yes, I did. And he said, well, I was the first one to get them in black flag. And all I wanted to do was like a fist bump of like bump tattoos. But I was like, just, well, that's cool. Yeah, we should probably go now. You know, so it's just so just over the moon in punk rock heaven and then on the way there i you know regained whatever composure i could and said yeah i was talking with cj he said it would be okay if it's okay with you for us to do a black flag song you know i'd love to do rise above and he's like well we'll do it in rehearsal and see how it sounds and i was like all right no pressure just playing it with the guy who helped write and record it on the original black flag album so we did it man that's cool yeah yeah so that is my um uh, that is my video antidepressant. Anytime I'm feeling down or if I'm feeling good, I just go on YouTube and pull that up and just, I'm in heaven. Wow. Where was that? Where was that played? It was in Nashville. It was, I forget the name of the club, but it's, I've seen it in, I think there was a show called Nashville and they used that venue a lot. And anytime I would see it on TV, I recognize it because it has a wall full of gold records behind where the drummer's sitting. So someplace in Nashville, like mm. off, off the beaten path. It's not on like, the, it's not in a touristy area. So we played there and then we did a, a show for Maws Wright Records at the Hard Rock in Nashville. And that's on, you know, the main touristy drag. I'd love to check that out. I'd love to pull that up on YouTube. Man, just look up. Des Cadena, C.J. Ramon, Michael Stanberg, Rise Above, and boom, there it is. Wow. Cool. Yeah, I'm Check. proud of that one. <laughs> Love it. Um, all right, so another one of your, your interests or passions is, well, you've got, you've got a whole list. I was trying to prepare for the conversation here. You've got gardening, and then you told me you're, you're a huge runner. Yeah. Um, well, literally. I mean, I'm 50 pounds heavier than I was when I ran my last marathon, so I'm, I'm a Huger runner than I care to be, but yeah, running is my my first love. The only sport that I really, I mean, that and BMX are the two sports that are. When did when did me. you get into running in in school or early on or after school? I mean, that's another thing that that um, my father got me into because when the whole running boom happened, he started running with a friend of his, and they would just run around the park, and then when they were done, they'd smoke a cigarette and when his friend started beating him in these like short runs, he decided to quit smoking. So running got my dad to quit smoking, which made, you know, made me happy, made my older sister happy. And when he started going to races in the late seventies, cause again, I'm old, um, he would bring me along and I would do the fun run. I do like the mile fun run, the mile and a half fun run. Then when I was 11 or 12, I would start doing the 5k or the five mile race. Uh, we had the, he, my father was a coach of a CYO track team, the, Catholic youth organization, even though I wasn't Catholic. And the only thing my dad practiced was guitar. Like he was the coach, it didn't matter, you know, religion, whatever. So that was my first track team. Then junior high joined the track team, continued going to races, high school. I did cross country, winter track, spring track, four years in a row. Did my first half marathon my freshman year. It's still my personal record. Now we're in 37 minutes, thank you. 
and uh, just continued running. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad ran the New York Marathon a couple of times, and it just inspired me to like that. The New York Marathon, the Boston Marathon, that was like the World Series for me. That was like the Super Bowl. I mean, other kids had posters of, you know, Major League Baseball players, football players. I had pictures of Bill Rogers and Steve Prefontaine on my wall. Mm. You know, Bill Rogers won New York Marathon four times and won the Boston Marathon four times. Steve Prefontaine was a phenomenal uh, middle-distance runner from Oregon, and he was the first person in running to champion the rights for athletes to, for runners to make money and still be able to participate in the Olympics. So he really went to bat for a lot of people. Hmm. When did you run your first marathon? What was it like training for your first marathon? Um, it was kind of, it was interesting because I, I trained, we were on a U.S. tour. So every day, different city, different state. Oh, you were, you were training while you yeah. were, wow. Yeah, so a month of my training for the 2000, 2011 New York Marathon, which was my last full marathon, was on a U.S. tour. So that included running in Arizona when it was like 110, um, just running in mountains in like North Carolina, uh, just running through the French Quarter in New Orleans. And what was great about that is not only did it keep me from, you know, having one beer too many after a show, it just kept me on a good sleep schedule because I'd be exhausted, wouldn't stay up too late. You know, it wasn't like a huge partying scene. I mean, that was another thing with CJ. I think he got... He did enough of that on the road with the Ramones. Like, we would just go back to the hotel and, you know, hang out, have a few drinks, whatever. We'd always travel with books. We'd always be talking about. So that's, I mean, books are always just hmm. in my life. So that's another, you know, part of touring life was just bringing, bringing books, audio books to listen to in a van or just books to read in the airport. It's a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, yeah, so training in 2011 for the New York Marathon. It was different city every day. It was amazing. Yeah. What what was it like? Like what would, what was that experience like? Like first marathon? Was it everything you expected? Was it um, like how hard was it on your body? Were you used to it? Was it like like what was what was that? My my first marathon. Like? My first marathon was uh, running the, the first mile of the New York Marathon. You start in Staten Island. You run over the Verrazano Bridge. First mile is uphill. You don't feel it. You're just floating the whole way. And I just had like a smile on my face. I was so happy. Like I'm doing it. This is a dream coming true. Like this is it. Mm -hmm. And then about, I think it's the 15 mile mark. You hit the Queensboro Bridge, which I don't know how they do it, but it's like three times as steep on marathon day than it is any other, any other day. I'd driven over it a million times, but like Going over, that's a, it takes you into 59th Street from Queens to Manhattan. And just when you're cresting it, you're like, this is never ending. And that's when you start to rethink everything you did in training. Like, am I gonna, when am I going to hit the wall? It wasn't a matter of if I was going to hit the wall where just lactic acid takes over. But I knew it was coming. And then you go down the bridge, and then you run up. I, I forget if it's First or Second Avenue, whichever one runs one way north. And you just hear this, like... And it gets louder. Like, what is that? Like a plane landing? What is that? And it's the massive crowds that are lining the street. So then adrenaline carries you for the next five miles. And unfortunately, that's when I hit the wall. Mm. Like going up towards Harlem. Oh, as you were yeah. starting to hear the crowds? 
Well, after after the adrenaline wore off, and like you've heard, you, you know, a million people tell you, like you'll hear the crowds, do not speed up, do not speed up, because people get. I mean, some of the leaders lose the lead, like the elite runners. They get carried away with, you know, the crowds make them go too fast. So I was really hyper aware of not going too fast. Another thing I was told is put your name. This was before they started printing your name on, on the number. So just write your name on your, on your singlet, on your tank top. So I did that. So people, are, strangers are cheering for you the whole time. And that's the only way I finished. After hitting the wall, coming back down south towards Central Park, I think it was... Um, one of the smaller parks that you kind of snake around, I like was walking, just drinking Gatorade or whatever it was. And this dude was standing by his statue. He was like, come on, Michael, you got this. You got this. And I was like, I can't let that guy down. <laughs> and I just kept running. You know, there was a lot more walking, but still, like, he he actually carried me the last, and mentally carried me the last, encouraged me the last five miles. I just heard that in my head. Come on, Michael, you got this. And I'm like, he meant that. Yeah. Like, he, yeah. So I was like, yeah. I'll do it for him, <laughs> and also my 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 parents and uh, my you know my ex, my wife at the time uh, were waiting by Central Park. So I'm like, if I don't show up, they're gonna th- they're gonna think something horrible happened. Yeah. So yeah. So when you train for a marathon, you you don't go up to what do you go up to? Is like the the last leg of your training. The the longest run I did uh, was about 20 miles. And you do that at a conversational pace. Like if you're doing, they call it um, a long, slow distance run, LSD. If you can't carry on a conversation on your LSD, on your long run day, you're, you're going too fast. Mm. So I would just lock into like, you know, like a nine minute pace. And it, was, it's, it would just be so zen, just so relaxing. And knowing that I put in a mileage where I could do that for 20 miles and feel comfortable. And yeah, when you get to that point, it's... It's like no, it's probably probably the equivalent of like whatever feeling you get from being in an Indian sweat lodge or doing hot yoga for three hours or, you know. Yeah. yeah. That's a place I want to get back to. Yeah, that's the best. I think the best I, I've ever felt after a workout actually is I did jujitsu for a little bit. Oh, nice. And it's not my thing for sure. I just wanted to try it and see what it was like. And after that, like you're fighting for your life out there and you're trying to, I never did wrestling or anything like that growing up. And, you know, I just did this for not even a year, like a summer or a season. And after that experience, you, after a workout or a roll, it, you feel like, you know, amazing adrenaline. And yeah, I don't know why, but that, that and hot yoga, hot yoga too. You feel incredible after. Yeah. Once you get over like, once you get past the first 15 minutes where you can't have any water in hot yoga, then the instructor will be like, okay, take a sip. And then you're like, ah, like you feel loose. Yeah. I mean, yeah. a run, it can take like five miles to like really get into a good groove on a long run. But once you're there, you're like, oh yeah, this is why, this is why I'm doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, and I've never been a runner either, but I've started to run a little bit this summer and we, we've been talking about that a little bit. And once you get comfortable at that five, six mile pace, you're, you're like your heartbeat and your body, it feels good at five, six miles in. Like you, yeah. you're breathing comfortably, you have the conversational pace going, you know, you feel great. Um, but I don't think I could ever get beyond whatever, like a half marathon probably. Oh, you, you, you could. I don't know. The body, the knees, the hips. 
I'm, I'm, I speak from experience. I mean, I did. So I did New York in 2010, 2011. After 2011, I, I took a break from running, which turned into, you know, a handful of years where I would run a couple times a year, and that was it. And then I got the crazy idea about seven years ago to sign up for an ultra marathon. And I blame that on the book that I was reading while I was training for the New York Marathon. Like I was reading the book and listening to the book in the van on tour. And I've been running since, you know, since I was five years old. And it's a book that changed the way I thought about everything I thought I knew about running. It just turned it on its head and reinvigorated my love for running. You know, this was when I was doing those two marathons. And I love the book so much. It's about it's it's a book called Born to Run All right, by yeah. Christopher McDougall. Perfect. Yeah. Product placement. There you go. So it's about this guy who has a running injury and he's trying to figure out what's wrong with his what's wrong with his feet and he goes to a doctor and he tells him I don't know if it's the doctor that tells him about this tribe of runners, the Tarahumara that are that live in Mexico. Somehow through his journey, figuring out what's wrong with his foot or his leg or his knee or whatever. That's in the very beginning of the book. He goes on this journey, meets these elite American ultra runners that are training, trying to learn the secrets of the Tarahumara Indians in Mexico. And these are people that just run for the joy of it. From the time they're little kids, they have games where they run along these trails, kicking a ball. And they're just all happy. They're full of joy. I mean, that's one thing I learned going to all these countries in in South America. I mean, there are people living in poverty, but they're happy. They're thankful. They're grateful. I mean, that's something that's missing, I think, a lot in American culture, but that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So reading this book, Born to Run, I rediscovered my, the same joy that I had for just, you know, reckless running when you're a kid. Like when you, if you find that, find whatever it is that makes you that propels you forward when you're a kid and you're running and you don't know why you're just doing because it feels good you get that feeling back as an adult with all the responsibilities that you have all the worries the fears the like whatever's going on politically i mean just rediscovering that is it's it's euphoric Mm -hmm. and i i found that and that's what helped keep me centered and grounded while touring you know all the the stress of touring sometimes lack of sleep Reading this book, it's something I go back to every year. What are they called again? The Chara? The Tarahumara. Tarahumara. Like, why? What was their secret? What is their secret to being able to run so far and so freely? I think part of it is um, just a a healthy diet. You know, I mean, they they do eat, a lot of them do eat meat, but they they eat a lot of chia seeds. And apparently chia seeds have a perfect balance of fat and protein and uh, carbohydrate in them. So when I signed up and did the uh, 50 mile ultra marathon, um, I certainly didn't train properly for it, but between aid stations, my girlfriend gave me a water bottle that was, had like two tablespoons of chia seeds in it. And I think that kept me going and I didn't even have a headache or never got dehydrated because I was constantly drinking fluid. But I think what kept me from bonking was the the chia water. Mm. So I mean, the, and also their their villages are so far apart, and you know a lot of them don't have cars. They just run. They run for fun, and they run. At this point, a lot of them were running to get prize money, competing against elite American athletes, and they eventually ended up having a race there that they hosted, where they had 
some of the best ultra runners from around the world competing against these, you know, the Tower Humara and seeing like who is the ultimate ultra runner. And in this book, you're introduced to one of the, at the time, one of the top American ultra marathon runners, this guy, Scott Jurek, who has written a book called Eat and Run. And it's about his life as a vegan ultra runner. And that book inspired me even further. And so he has another book that just came out a few years ago about the time he broke the world's record for running from the south end of the Appalachian Trail to the north end. And I think that book is actually called North or Going North, something like that. Yep, I've heard of that. Yeah. I think it is North. North, yeah. So, I mean, just having the, the pleasure of meeting him at a book event in, that was not far from Central Park. So before the book signing that Scott Jurek had, there was a run around a reservoir at Central Park, and it was maybe 75 people that participated in that. And throughout the run, Scott spent time with everyone. He started at the back and ran, like, person by person or couple by couple, ran and talked with everyone. Hmm. So that inspired me even further to keep running. But, yeah, I got to start again. <laughs> um do these people, do they run barefoot or do they run with shoes on? The the Tower Humara, they don't run barefoot. They run in sandals that are made from used tire, used car tires. So they're very, they're very thin or they have it a little thicker if they want a little more padding. And uh, I think that was part of what inspired Vibram, Vibram, however you say it, to do the, you know, the barefoot style, the individual toe shoe because i've heard that's good for your feet when you're running i mean maybe not on on the roads but on like a lighter surface on a gra- softer surface what barefoot what I, I mean what barefoot running or running with a minimal issue which is something with like very little support it gets you to not not run with your heel first it gets you to strike with your with your forefoot which is how we naturally run like when before Companies like Nike started making running shoes where they put all the, all that cushioning in the heel. That's when we became heel strikers because the heel is so thick and so cushioned. We land on our heels. Mm. But before that, I mean, if you look back at runners like Roger Bannister, the first runner to break the four-minute mile barrier, they're they're forefoot strikers. Or even like elite runners, they run on their they hit their forefoot first. So some people think that if you run like that, you're biomechanics are or more natural you can run further longer um so yeah i tried a pair of vibrams after reading born to run and they don't it, the book doesn't preach one way or the other or, and say you know it says find what works for you so the the vibrams did not work for me and i went the other way and now when i run i wear hokas which have like the thickest heel and the more cushioning than you could ever need but that's what i did my marathons in that's what i did the 50 miler in which was hoka i was gonna say i think i need to uh invest in some hokos because i'd see those things around and they just look so comfortable yeah i mean you were talking about different knee or leg problems like i had knee issues shin splint achilles issues like when i switched to hoka you know knock on wood everything's been fine yeah i i i mean i'm fine i run I mean, I run long distance, not super long distance, but I go on runs pretty often. I just think in college playing lacrosse, I did so much cutting. Yeah. So, so my knees and my my hips, I mean, I think I just need to continue to do yoga and stretch and just keep the body uh, 
flexible, but yeah. sometimes the the pounding on the hard surface affects me a little bit and I get, you know, knees and hip, but that's pretty common if you're a runner, right? Yeah. I mean, w- running on tarmac or concrete, I mean, it's the worst thing for you. And that's uh, another thing, another reason why I'm really glad that we moved here is there, there's trails everywhere. So in Hamden, I'm like a, a five minute run from some trails that I will be hitting soon. I promise. I mean, I just started assisting the assistant coaches for the cross country team. Nice. So I'm excited about that. And I look forward to being in enough shape to run with, uh, you know, maybe the back of the JV pack and some short, easy runs. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So another question about Born to Run is, um, because I've heard of this book, I've read not all of it, but a lot of it. And one of the figures they talk about a lot is uh, Caballo Blanco. And I yeah. never actually found out who he is or what he's all about because he's kind of a mysterious figure. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to give uh, too much away about him, but he is, he's kind of one of the one of the heroes in the book. And he had a really interesting life, and he started out as a boxer, like getting paid to fight people. I mean, I'm explaining what a boxer is. <laughs> We'll fix this in post, right? Anyway, so he was paid, like, I mean, he wasn't a pro fighter, but he, he made a living because I guess people really, he had, he had a specific style that people liked. And uh, he had maybe like a rough a rough life and then just disappeared into the mountains of, of you know, Mexico and was running and befriended the Tarahumara. And he's like a, a ghost figure to a lot of people because he would just, have this long hair and people would talk about the white you know the white horse the white horse the white horse yeah and he was this legend so when christopher mcdougall the author of born to run when he's looking for him like he's wondering if he really exists or not and then he meets him and hears his life story and it's just it's incredible and it's a guy who just runs because he loves it Mm -hmm. and it's another person that reminded me of of you know what was the original joy of running it was just Sometimes just the act of doing it, I mean, not even going for a run to, like, cheer yourself up or, like, solve a problem, just to, just doing it. Just hear, I, I don't run with earbuds. I want to hear everything that's going on, whether it's a car that doesn't see me or just nature or just, this, just the crunch of a trail under my feet or just my breathing, just being, just being fully aware. It's like a whole Zen mind thing. So, so someone like Caballo Blanco... His name was uh, Mika True. Yep. Um, just inspiring. I mean, just it's it's so the the things that can make anyone happy are so fundamentally basic, and we're so distracted by just everything. I mean, just the phone in my pocket is probably the most evil device you could have, but there it is, and there I am on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, emails. I mean, sometimes unnecessary, like you know the. Gilman email, of course, um, <laughs> but just the, the 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 basic joy that you can get from doing something as simple as running is. I, w- I wish more people could find that in whatever they're doing. Yeah, you know whether it's teaching a class or playing football or I don't know, going going to school. Just 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 find that joy, that basic fundamental joy, and and that's that's. Born to Run brought that back to my life with, with running. Yeah, it just makes you recognize or see what's pretty obvious and basic and simple. Um, and I think, you know, I kind of got into running this summer, and I realized that because 
growing up and playing sports, everything's so competitive and you're always yeah. trying to get an edge. And, and especially in college, playing lacrosse is like you can never really take a break in terms of like and just enjoy the love of the game because it's always like, you know, I've got to do this to beat this guy out and you got to keep getting better. And it sometimes felt like a chore. And so I think I looked at running a little bit as like, all right, I've got to hit this mile marker and I've got to get this time. And that's maybe why I didn't want to run or like running. And I realized that just going for a run and breaking a sweat is enough. Like you don't don't have to do too much. You don't have to get all the stats down and measure everything. You can if you want, but just getting outside and enjoying it and feeling good is what it's about. I mean, that's, that's, that's the beauty of it. And then if you do want to take it to another level or another place you can you know run a certain distance on a certain path or around a track and just you're competing against yourself even if you're in a race and there are age group awards or whatever like even if you don't place like you could still say like all right how did i do on this day based on how i was feeling what did i eat the day before like all these all these things come in come into play but if you do want to get down to the you know just competing for fun i mean you're always competing against yourself and then like when you you know, go from 49 to 50, like when you're at 50, you're like, okay, what can I do now? And then like you just, any, whatever you do, it's going to be the fastest you've run at the age of 50. And then you can just mark yourself against, against that or see if maybe, let me see if I could run as fast as I did 10 years ago. Or, mm-hmm. I mean, for me, it's always going to be like, can I beat that half marathon time from ninth grade? And I've come close, but, um, again, it's just, it's just all fun. Yeah. And it's all about yourself and you don't have to compare yourself to other people too yeah. much. And um, when you say that when you run, it's a, there's a Zen like component mentally, like, can you describe a bit, little bit about like the mental benefits of running for you? It's things that seem like a, a huge problem that are within your control seem to be less of a problem or even not a problem. I mean, there are things beyond our control that happen that maybe the problem isn't eliminated, but just your way of thinking about it is so much more relaxed mm-hmm. because like physically your, your, your body is, is happier, you're, you're, you're healthier. But when you're running and you get into that groove, just everything seems a little more manageable. Like you might think of a solution for something that you otherwise wouldn't have. It's almost, I mean, I've never done sensory deprivation, but it does seem like a lot of the outside world, all the distractions are gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially if you're running on a trail, if it's not too technical, or even if it is, you're so focused on not tripping over something. And then if those thoughts come in, you can just handle them. You know, like if there's a problem or someone at work that's annoying you or or whatever it may be or there's a a health issue or a loved one that something's wrong you could just think all right you know you'll do what you can you'll do the best you can and on that run you're doing the best you can whether whatever your goal is for that day if it's an easy run and you're just running easy if you're accomplishing that then you're free to think about everything else in such a calm and peaceful manner without distraction yeah. It just thoughts flow, you know, it's it's easier. Breaks up some of the fog of and the distractions uh, yeah. and Absolutely. 
Yeah. Do you like to run in the morning, in the afternoon, in a certain time every single day, or is it just whenever you can get one in? I mean, I, I did prefer the morning, but um, it's going to be afternoon now. <laughs> you know, being being here, it's at um, it's 7.30. Uh, I think it's going to be an afternoon endeavor, maybe on the weekends. It'll be in the morning, yeah. you know, hit the trail before, you know, all the other trail folk are out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's my thing. I like to I like to try to exercise when I'm completely by myself. Like I I like going into the weight room here when no one else is really there even though it's for sure large enough to fit yeah. everyone. It's an amazing new uh place on campus, but I like the alone time. I like having my own space. Um but yeah, some people like to exercise in the morning first thing. Some people like to wait till their body's woken up a little bit. I guess it's just different. Yeah, I, I like some of my favorite runs would be, you know, first thing in the morning, maybe even before the sun comes up. And like just as the sun is coming up, you're still waking up and it's yeah. like you feel like everything's, you know, like blooming at once. Yeah. You know, it's natural. It's a, yeah. Yeah. It seems like a lot of what you enjoy doing, whether it's reading or um, playing the drums or running is like it's, it, there's a mental component or a freeing aspect mentally. Yeah. Um, and you said that, that gardening is something that you're also pretty passionate about. Oh, I love um, it. How did you kind of first get into gardening and what, what, what is gardening, what role does gardening serve in your life? I always help my mom plant um, annual plants. This, is, this confounds me to this day. Why plants that do not come back every year are called annuals, and the ones that come back every year are perennial. I don't know the Latin origin of perennial, but annual. Doesn't that sound like something that's a yearly thing? Annual. Annual, annual is yearly. This is an annual sale. It's going to happen again next year. Annual plant, not happening next year. you got to do, do it again. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my mom got me into gardening. Would always plant uh, Mother's my, All she ever wanted for Mother's Day was to, to go plant shopping with me and plant them in front of the house. So I did that, and I think it was growing pumpkins and sunflowers in my 20s that really became exciting, like just watching something insanely giant grow, like or just even the little pumpkins or little sunflowers. And then I got into all the different varieties, and growing potatoes was a lot of fun. Growing anything, anything that you grow and you eat is always going to taste better. You know where it came from. And then I got into um, succulent plants. Those are like cactus like plants that don't require a lot of water and so you can kind of leave them alone for a bit and they do their own thing so just gardening it's, it's very relaxing i never i never had like a uh, a bonsai tree or anything like that i mean i rem remember seeing people work with bonsai trees particularly in a, a karate kid where danielson mm -hmm. you know mr miyagi teaches them how to trim a bonsai tree I just thought that would be really cool, but I, I never did that. But I guess I'd, I've been doing that on a larger scale, and I find it very relaxing. Even just even just weeding a garden, you know, just pulling out the things that are that are getting in your way. It's like clearing your mind, clearing the ground, and it's very relaxing. Just mm -hmm. and just knowing that that you you cared for something, you nurtured something. I don't have any children, and I'm sure parents feel that way to like the, to the nth degree. What I experience with the garden, they feel with 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 uh their children or their you know but yeah there's a lot of weird analogies there anyways <laughs> but, 
just planting a seed and watching something grow is incredible. Yeah. I think also um, I watched this guy. Uh, he has a bunch of YouTube videos, Jordan Peterson, and he always says that when like a lot of things are going on in your life and in your world, the first thing you could do to make yourself feel better is clean your room. Yeah. And make your room spotless and you know if you can take care of that then you can go out and solve all the other issues out there and what you're talking about with gardening i've never really been a gardener i just moved on campus here at gilman and there's a little garden in the back so i think we're gonna have to chat some more about what i can do back there oh, but, absolutely but i feel like having a garden is the same idea as if you can like actually manage and control this area and you know this manageable area yeah. Then you you're at a peace of mind to go out and figure out all the other more complicated things out there. Yeah, I mean it, it's like anything in life. The more you the, the more you practice something, it it eventually becomes a habit. So it's not it's something that you just do. Like drumming for me, like I practiced for years and years and years. I could I could go and play with someone right now. I could play with a band I've never rehearsed with before, but if I even remotely know the songs, I can just play it without worrying it. It's just natural because I practiced enough that it just becomes, you know, a habit, just a natural way of, of, of doing something. It's like breathing. You're not thinking inhale, exhale, and it just, I guess, I guess it's not a habit. I guess it's not something you have to, well, you can practice mindful breathing. Mm-hmm. Gardening, cleaning your room. I mean, it's all, yeah, you do that with the rest of your life. You're, you're in good shape. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, second nature almost when you figure out all those you know those parts of your life i just think it's interesting for you that you know i'm sure like drumming is stress relieving and it makes you feel good at the end of a long day and you know running is the same thing and so is gardening it's like just a way to clear your mind and like boost your spirit which i think is you know i feel like you have to have outlets like that in life yeah, and even if, even if it's not like a, a a physically demanding activity, just just something that you that you're in control of to some extent, or that you can like a garden, like you know, if a fungus comes along or like little mites or something, there are things that you can do to 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 mitigate that. But for the most part, you're you're running the show, mm-hmm. and it's it's I think it's healthy. It's good for your it's good for your mind. I mean, what you said about the room. Until I was out of school, I guess, my room was always a mess. So it's funny that you mentioned that. And that, like, if you're waking up to that and going to sleep to that, it's the first thing, first and last thing you see is clutter, then your your head's going to be all over the place. But, I don't know, they also say clutter desk is a sign of a genius or, you know, I don't, I have a lot of thoughts on, on all of that. But, yeah, gardening, running, drumming, to, to, to me, they're all connected. So when I went from being a touring punk rock drummer doing you know part-time actor or whatever to library school so many people were scra- would scratch their head and be like kind of sarcastically say like oh yeah that's a logical leap and like it, it really it really becoming a librarian it really is a logical step because it's just more you know it's putting everything I've done in my life into practice and sharing it with other people and just continue on the journey of, of learning I can still you know travel take vacations um, still run, still, I, I started racing BMX again about seven years ago, which was something I did when I was a kid and I stopped doing cause I couldn't, I couldn't have the explosive speed to, to compete in BMX and run cross country. So fortunately I chose cross country cause that was again, something, you know, my coach, he was a huge influence on me 
in high school. So hmm. that all ties into working at Gilman, where they have the teacher-coach model. That's something that was the biggest inspiration, you know, for four years of my life. It was a math teacher who was also the cross-country and track coach. So I feel like I've come full circle. Mm-hmm. Like, just following... Um, who was not Bill Moyers? Uh, Joseph Campbell said, "You know, follow your bliss." Mm-hmm. So he was, you know, he wrote uh, "The Power of Myth" and "The Hero Wears a Thousand Masks or a Thousand Faces." I'm uh, lacking caffeine, so my brain doesn't always work. <laughs> but um, yeah, follow your bliss. I mean, that's what I've been doing, and I end up here where, you know, I interview with a handful of people, and everyone from, you know, the the information and innovation person, you know, Ty, up to up to Henry, the head of the school, all talking about the teacher-coach model, all talking about um, making, you know, producing productive members of society, mm-hmm. not people who are going to be, you know, Super Bowl champions or the head of IBM or, or whatever, just like producing like fundamentally decent human beings was something that I connected with that goes back to high school. So, yeah, so going from being a touring drummer, learning about different cultures around the world, to wanting to be an archivist, working in a public library, then working in a school, which I never thought I would end up in school. Mm-hmm. That's Anyway, so, like, here I am. It all It's all connected. Yeah, and it allows you to, you know, have your afternoons and the summers and the breaks to do the things that you like to do. Yeah. On your own, which I, I really like about Gilman is that I have a lot of things that I like outside of English and teaching and even this podcast that, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's like an avenue to explore and uh, and do certain things that maybe if I was working, you know, in a bank or wherever, I wouldn't even have the chance or the time to, to do. It would be a little tougher. It'd be tough, you know. So that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Um, but Michael, thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Well, thank think, you for having me. I think we pleasure. covered a lot. I love the book choice because I'm glad we could, I, I didn't finish reading that book, but I'd like to return to it and maybe it will inspire me to run a little bit more than I'm running right now. But like we said, you know, it's all about just getting out there, but, um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on and look forward to seeing you in the library. For sure. Thank you. Of course. <laughs>